So if you have your Bible, open it to Psalm 51. We'll do a short meditation here. And then I wanted to open it up for any discussion on this psalm or on uh, the morning message, if there's any questions or thoughts on that. Maybe have a little bit of group discussion if there's anything on this or that. And then after that, we'll move to our prayer time. Okay, let's see if I could keep this short. Psalm 51. Now, let me read the whole psalm because you don't go wrong when you read God's word. Most powerful words spoken tonight are the very words of scripture read. So let me read to you the whole psalm. I'll pray and then we will share some thoughts. I'll give you a very skeleton, bare bones outline of the psalm. And maybe I'll preach it again some other day. Okay, Psalm 51. For the choir director, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn away, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your, in your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. Whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, we want the heart of David here. A heart that hates sin, a heart that repents, and repents immediately and quickly. As we think briefly about this psalm, hide your word in our heart that we would not sin against you. And when we do sin against you, hide this word in our heart that we will run to you in repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Repentance is a counterintuitive reaction to sin. If you're not a Christian, your intuition says when you sin, do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? When they sinned and they heard God walking, what was their first, their gut reaction? To what? Hide, right? Run and hide. Cover. Change your face. Put on a show so that they won't know 
sin that's in your heart and life. That's our sinful reaction. The very opposite of it, uh, opposite of that is repentance. When you sin, you run to God. That doesn't come naturally to us. It comes supernaturally to us in the cross and in God's grace working in our hearts. Romans 2.4 was a very strange verse to me for a very long time. And then in one of my sinful moments where I was dealing with guilt and struggling with shame before God in bed, just wallowing in guilt, I realized the meaning of that verse. And Romans 2.4, there's a song that goes with it. It says, it's your kindness that leads us to what? Repentance. I never understood what that meant. But here's what it, here's what it means. It means that God doesn't lead us to repentance by wagging his finger at us. That's not how you elicit repentance. That's not how God does it. That's not how you should do it in your relationships with your family, in this church. If you want to lead someone to repentance, give them kindness. Because that is inviting someone to repent. If you wag your finger and say, you must repent, and that's the only position or the main tone of your position towards them, you don't elicit repentance. You elicit them running away. And you reinforce the natural reaction. So God, so here I am wallowing in shame. I don't remember how old I was at the time, maybe 19 or 20. And thinking, God is not even wagging his finger at me. He's reminding me that he's kind and he wants me to come to him. And here I am trying to figure out that if I wallow enough in my shame, then God will forgive me because I've kind of whipped myself in the back enough. That's not repentance. That's penance. And that's earning forgiveness. And so the kindness of God leads someone to repentance. Now, there are two types of humans in the world today. There are unrepentant sinners and there are repentant sinners. Those are two kinds of humans in the world. So we want to think about repentance here. If I was doing a full sermon here tonight, I might go into the story of David and Bathsheba. You could look at 2 Samuel 11 for your homework and look at the story of David and Bathsheba. But here, let me just briefly, and in very, very skipping the surface, if I was preaching, I'd just go deeper into these things. But let me give you four things here. The reasons for repentance, the results of repentance, the requirement of repentance, and the ripple effect of repentance. Now, this is going to be like a machine gun of just lists of stuff because we're not going to, we're, we're only taking 15 or 20 minutes here. So let me say that again. The reasons for repentance, the results of repentance, the requirement of repentance, and the ripple effect of repentance. Okay? Reasons, results, requirement, ripple effect. Let's go with number one, verses one through six, the reasons for repentance. Let me show you three, four reasons here why we should repent. Uh, reason number one is in verse three. David says, I am conscious of my what? Transgression. Transgression. I'm aware of my rebellion and my sin is where? Always before me. Why should you repent? Because you know that you have sinned. You're aware of it. You feel the shame. So if you feel it, that's a trigger in your soul to run to who? To God. So why should you repent? Because you know you've sinned. Number two, reason number two, verse four. Not only have you sinned in general, verse four, who have you sinned against? Verse four says, against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So who did David feel he sinned against? Only who? God. Now, that's not technically true. 
Okay, I'm not saying the Bible has an error, but that's not technically true. Who else did who else did David sin against? Can you name anyone else David sinned against? Bathsheba, Uriah. Yeah, you you killed Uriah. I don't know if they had any kids, but if they did, you sinned against the children, taking their father and their mother. You sinned against the nation. You're the spiritual leader of the whole nation of Israel. You sinned against your other wives. You got four or five other wives. You sinned against. You got children you sinned against. It's hard to think of someone David did not sin against, right? And yet, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He's not saying he did not sin against these people. But he is so focused on the greatest person you sin against every time you sin, namely God. Now, that doesn't mean you don't ask forgiveness from other people. But God is far and away the priority when you sin. Go to God for forgiveness because he is so holy and every single sin you do against everyone else is still a greater sin against God than it is against them. And so against you and you only. So if you know who God is, then you should have a repentant heart because you know you've sinned against him and he can see your sin. Verse five, a third reason why you should repent is because you're a sinner by nature. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, when you are examining your heart, don't be defensive. Your default should be, yeah, I'm probably sinning, (laughs) rather than I'm not sinning. Okay, I'm not saying you're always sinning every single moment of every single day, but you, you know, we sin a whole lot more than we think we do. Let me just take the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? The first commandment, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. All. You do that? Are you doing that tonight? Am I doing that right now while I'm preaching God's word? All my heart right now? It's hard to say I am. So I could be sinning right now. If I'm not loving God with all my heart, I'm sinning right now, right? All my soul, all my mind, all my strength. And so we are sinners, by nature and by choice. And so we need to have a repentant posture of lifestyle. And then fourth, fourth reason to repent is because of what God loves to do in verse six. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. God teaches us wisdom deep within. Why should we repent? Because God is leading us to repent. He's teaching us to repent. The way of wisdom is the way of repentance. So those are four reasons to repent, okay? You know your sin, you know you sinned against God, you know you're a sinner by nature, and God teaches you to repent as the way of wisdom. Okay, now we talked about the reasons for repentance. Let's go to the second point here, the results of repentance. What are some results of repentance? Two results I just want to mention in verse 13. When you repent, what happens? Look at verse 13. So verse 12 is the restoration of repentance. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me or give me a willing spirit. Then what happens? What's the result? Verse 13. Then I will do two things. What will I do? I'll teach others what? Your ways. ways, And secondly, what? Sinners will return to you. People will convert. People will turn and repent as well. So there's two things that happen when you repent. When you repent, it makes you a teacher. You start to teach others to repent too. You teach others about God's ways. You know why? Because you're free. You don't feel like a hypocrite anymore. When you were sinning and hiding it and polishing it and sort of half 
confessing it, but not fully owning it, you were never feeling free to teach. But when you're repentant and you just bring it to God, forgive me, I've sinned against you. And you know that God's grace in Christ washes over your soul. Man, that gives you a confidence to teach others about God's way. And then they say to you, you hypocrite PJ, how could you tell me to evangelize? You haven't evangelized for three weeks. You're right. I haven't evangelized for three weeks. I haven't even prayed for my neighbors in the last week. You know what? I have sinned against God. I need to ask him for forgiveness. And then I go to God, I ask him for forgiveness. And then I come back here behind this pulpit and I say, share the gospel with your non-Christian friends. Without any fear of hypocrisy. Not because I've done it perfectly, but because I live by grace in repentance and faith in Christ. And when you're repentant, the result is you teach with confidence. Not because you're perfect, but because God is perfect and he perfectly forgives you and cleanses you of your sin. Okay? And so you teach others when you repent. And when you don't, you hold back. Second result, though, when you're repentant, in verse 13, is sinners will return to you. Preaching, and not just preaching behind a pulpit, gospelizing, speaking the truth in love to others, is God's word communicated through your personality. So here you are, you're having a conversation after our, our Sunday, ga- Sunday night gathering, and you're talking to each other, you speak truth to each other. That is God's truth communicated through your personality. When you are a repentant person, there is more spiritual power in your calling others to repentance. And it's sweet. And when it is sweet, guess what happens to sinners? They see the kindness of God. And the kindness of God leads people to what? Salvation. Repentance, right? Salvation through repentance and faith. And so sinners repent when they encounter a repentant Christian who's sharing the gospel with them, who's gospelizing them, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. You gospelize someone and they want to repent. Okay? So those are two results of repentance. It makes you a teacher, a confident teacher, and it gives you a power to effect repentance in people's lives because of your repentant life. Okay? Number two. So you got the reasons for repentance. You got the results of repentance. Third, we have the requirements of repentance or the requirement of repentance. What is the requirement of repentance? Verses 14 through 17 give us an idea of it. First, it tells us what the requirement is not. Look at verse 16. You do not want what? What does God not want? A sacrifice. Or I would give it. You are not pleased with what? Verse 16. A burnt offering. God doesn't want... So what does God require for repentance? He doesn't require a sacrifice. He doesn't require your sacrifices. He doesn't require your works. He doesn't require your fixing the problem. That's not the requirement of repentance. You fix it. You made this mess. You clean it up. That's not the requirement of repentance. What is the requirement of repentance? Verse 17. The sacrifice pleasing to God is what? A broken heart or a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled or contrite heart. The requirement of repentance is brokenness. Not your works. Not your excuses. Not your theologically intricate justifications and excuses for why you're not as sinful as you might feel deep down that you are. God requires brokenness, contrition, 
humility. No excuses. Just two hands saying, God, take me. Have you ever been broken like that before? Or have you ever ran into someone who's broken by that? It could be the death of a loved one. It could be a divorce somebody's going through. And they just absolutely get to the point where they're just saying, God, I have nothing. Like, just do whatever. I'm yours. And yes, you know, uh, you know, if I was talking to someone who got a divorce or was getting a divorce, and you know, they're just like, I have. And they want their person, that person back. They're just broken. They have no more excuses. They're done. They're not justifying. There's no more pride. I'm a sinner. I messed up. I need God's help. That's what God requires. Brokenness and contrition and humility. Contrast that with Saul. Right? Here's David. He's in sin and he's broken. Saul, when he was told in 1 Samuel, go kill all of the Amalekites. All of them. And all their animals. You know what Saul did? He and, and that's because the Malachites attacked Israel when they were traveling to the promised land. And God had a curse on them and God was coming back around to judge them for their sins. So they were a special people under a curse. And God saying, Saul, you're the king of my people. Execute the judgment. Saul goes to war with Amalek. He kills most of the, all their warriors. Doesn't kill the king, but takes him prisoner, sort of like a prize. Doesn't kill the best sheep. Samuel comes. Did you disobey God? Why do I hear the voice of sheep? The bleeding of sheep. Why? And then Saul says, Oh, I saved them to sacrifice them to Yahweh for the great victory he's given me. And then what does Samuel respond with very famously? Does God delight in sacrifice more than obedience? You disobey God and you make an excuse for your sin. You dress it up in worship. You dress it up in sacrifice. You dress it up as holiness. That you dishonor the clear command of God in scripture or from the prophet. That's not brokenness. That's excuse making. That's rationalizing. And when you do that, you can't have repentance. You're not ready for repentance. You're not meeting the requirement of repentance because it's still about you and not about the glory of God. It's about why you're not as bad as God might be convicting you to think you are. And that doesn't work. George Swinnick said, He grieves truly that weeps without a witness. When you cry on your own to God, no one watching, not the church, not that's wrong, it's not wrong to cry here if you're weeping to God for your sin, but, but when you cry alone and no one's watching, that's when you know you're truly repentant. A repenting man, Samuel Rutherford writes, a repenting man is more angry at his own heart that consenteth to sin than he is at the devil who did tempt him to sin. You're not blaming the devil. It's my heart. It's my hard-heartedness. And why can you be confident that when you're broken, that God would forgive you? When you have nothing to offer, because the natural inclination is to fix it. Why can we be confident? Without making our own sacrifice? Because who made the ultimate sacrifice? Who made the sufficient sacrifice? Jesus Christ did, right? Hebrews 10. Let me read to you Hebrews 10. You could turn there if you want. Hebrews 10. If you want. There, turn there, brother. Hebrews 10, 10 to 18. Listen to this. By the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Every priest stands, this old covenant now, day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. I don't want your sacrifices. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For he, after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. God doesn't want your sacrifices because Christ made the one ultimate sacrifice. Fully complete, fully sufficient for all your sins. He doesn't require your good works. He doesn't require your sacrifice. He requires your brokenness. Stop trying. Be still and know that I am God. Or stop your fighting and know that I am God. Stop your striving and know that I am God. Okay, so you have, what do we have? We have the reasons for repentance. We have the results of repentance. We have the requirement of repentance. And lastly, we have the ripple effect of repentance. When you repent, what is the ripple effect of it? Verse 18 and 19. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. So here I am. You've restored me. It's your sacrifice, not mine. It's my broken heart resting on your grace. Then what happens in verse 19? What's the ripple effect? Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So what is that saying? Once you repent, what's the ripple effect? Now God is pleased with what? Your sacrifices. Think of Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Right, reasonable service, spiritual worship. That's what it is. But that's not how you gain repentance, right? That's not how you earn forgiveness, by being a living sacrifice. God doesn't desire that. He desires a broken heart. But when you have a broken heart, trusting in Christ and the gospel, now you can become a living sacrifice and God is pleased with your sacrificial living. It's not that God's against good works. Live your life. Pour your life out, sacrificing your self-centeredness to bless others with their joy in God. Do that. But don't do that to make up for your sin because you can't. Do that as a result of God pouring out grace in your life that you haven't earned. That's the ripple effect of repentance. It makes you someone who is sacrificial and pleasing to God because you have been repentant and you have been cleansed again and again and again and again. So, closing application for you, don't delay repentance. Don't delay repentance. Let me give you three quotes here before I close in prayer. Number one, whoever delay. this is Thomas Manton, whoever delays his repentance does, in effect, pawn his soul with the devil. Wow. I'll, I'll repent tomorrow. What Thomas Manton is saying is, well, you're pawning your soul to the devil. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're giving it up to him, at least, you know, practically in that moment. Another quote says this, delaying repentance, but desiring to be godly later, does not strengthen or progress one in that direction. I'll be godly later. I'll repent later. 
you have that mentality, you're not progressing towards godliness. You're actually going the other way. Lastly, Thomas Watson. By delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezeth, the harder it is to be broken. Don't delay repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we want to be repentant as Christians. We don't want to live fake or hypocritical Christian lives. So break our hearts over our sin. We confess the sin of hard-heartedness where we know we're sinful. We know some specific sins we're in. And we even ask for forgiveness, but our hearts are not fully broken and humbled. Break our hearts, Father. Humble us. Take away all pride and self-defense. Where we don't care about our own glory. We don't care about how others look at us. We just care about pleasing you and being close to you. Make us a repentant people. A deeply, increasingly repentant people. And help us to repent immediately and not delay. In Jesus' name, amen.